0: Hi, everyone. I'm Mark Legier and welcome to Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. I'm David Campbell.
1: And I'm Don Mills. This week, uh, we decided to do uh, a special edition podcast, given all the recovery plans in Atlantic Canada. So we're going to take a short interruption of our series on the provincial economies, and we'll be back uh, next week with a third of the four-part series. So, um, yeah, let's get into it, guys.
0: Yeah, and thanks very much, guys, for having me. I love being able to jump in every few episodes and and uh, help uh, help moderate a conversation between you two guys. And so, uh, David, I think a good a good place to start is uh, you know setting us up on where where is the economy right now in the region.
2: So yeah, I think a, a lot of people anticipated it would be a lot worse in terms of the economic impact. I mean, basically, you had quite a bit of a seizing up of the economy in the early days. So some of the forecasters were predicting six, seven, percent GDP decline in 2020. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't nearly as bad. The Maritimes did quite well. The average decline in GDP over the years was about 3.2, 3.3 percent. So it's still in sort of historical terms, that's a big recession, a big, big drop but not nearly as bad, probably about half as bad as some of the original forecasts. Newfoundland's GDP declined by 5.3, but of course, Newfoundland is far more reliant on uh, oil and gas, and there's a big swing there in terms of oil and gas. But I would say one of the reasons for that, and we can get into this a bit later if you'd like, but basically the government, the federal government came in with roughly about a billion dollars a day in terms of uh, uh, income support. Uh, and support for other uh, companies and individuals. So they spent $139 billion just in the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy Program and the CERB program over a 10 and a half month pro, uh, uh, period, about $14 billion a month. In Atlantic Canada alone, over $6 billion in those two programs alone. So basically, about 15% of the value of all employment income came through those two programs uh, last year. So you had a very high level of government support. Otherwise, the the economy probably would have done a lot worse. And now we need to talk about today how we get the private sector to step up uh, and replace that because we cannot see that level of government support moving forward.
1: In fact, uh, one of the problems coming out of this, I think, is that uh, because the economy has been propped up by federal money to the extent that it has, that it's you know left a lot of companies in a in a kind of a a, a problem area because some of them can't get employers, employees to work for them because people are too comfortable on the federal support. So when that goes away, there's going to be a come-to-Jesus moment for a lot of people, I believe, in terms of, oh, they're going to have to work now for their money. So that will be a challenge for some people, but good for employees, employers. But I also think that uh, because uh, some companies have been propped up uh, during this period by federal money, they won't make it when that when – that, Support uh, goes away. In fact, this just yesterday in Halifax, a long time um, restaurant, uh, Athens restaurant announced that they would be going out of business this year this summer, after 40 years. Now, maybe there are other things that impacted that decision, I'm not sure, but you know, I think that there's a lot of that just pent up uh, waiting to happen. And if we don't get our economy open for tourism as quickly as possible, there's going to be a lot of failed companies yet to come, I think, David, don't you?
2: Yeah, I think that's one of the unknowns here is what will happen to all of these businesses that have been supported. It's almost like two ends of a spectrum. You have a number of businesses that actually made record profits during the year, even though they were getting Uh, the government support because the support was based on monthly revenue trends this year compared to last year. Uh, And so depending on how your revenue flowed, you actually got a fairly significant uh, amount of federal support, even though you had record profits. So that's, again, that's another sort of side debate that we don't have to discuss today, but you're right on the other end of the spectrum, you had a number of businesses in restaurants and personal services and even business services that were basically hanging on by a thread. And that, support is going to peter out later on this year. uh, And I think it will lead to a number of businesses closing permanently.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, and I think certainly with Huddle, we've talked to a lot of businesses in the last year just through our reporting. And the case of Athens is an interesting one, Don, because there there seems to be a lot of companies that, you know, just aren't going to make it out of this. And And I don't know if Athens fits this, but there's also some companies that, you know, have, you know, aging entrepreneurs that are near retirement and and they don't you have like younger family members to take over them in the case of some small businesses. So they're just choosing, you know, now to kind of like pack it up rather than rebuild coming out of COVID. Um, and we've talked to another number of entrepreneurs like that in the last, you know, last six months or so. But uh, Don, I also, it, it also makes me think of the conversation that you had with, uh, with Kathy Bennett from, from Newfoundland. And, you know, she had mentioned that as a very specific concern of hers that, you know, one of the challenges for in Newfoundland, but it'd be true in all the provinces, is what, you know, a real concern she expressed of what, what are we going to do coming out of this when the support is gone? And and what kind of impacts is that going to have, uh, you know, on the broader economy, on unemployment, particularly in like service sectors that don't completely come back, right?
1: Well, that's right. And that's why, you know, this discussion today about the recovery plans is so important. Um you know i question why it's so conservative given where we are in uh, the number of cases the number of hospitalizations Uh, for instance right now as of i think yesterday in the land of canada we had 22 people in hospital in the land of canada and nine in icu so those are those are serious and i don't discount that but that's actually a pretty small number for 2.4 million people it's a very Small number relative even to other places in Canada, and the case count uh, it continues to fall as well. So there's you know there's a situation where we're well ahead of getting this under control. There's no evidence of community spread except for maybe a small part of Halifax. Anywhere in Atlantic Canada, Um, the vaccination rate is coming along nicely. Uh, We're going to hit most of the targets that are in each of the four provincial plans. And and so the question is, could we do some things earlier without threatening the health of the population? I believe that we can. Um, and and so one of the things that I did in preparation for today's podcast, I just took a look at the four reopening plans. The one the first thing that struck me is that they're both the same and different. <laughs> you know, they all have you know, in the case of Newfoundland, they have a three-step uh, program and in uh, a transition phase. Uh, New Brunswick has a three-phase plan. PEI has a five-step plan. Nova Scotia has a five-phase plan. They all have kind of different targets to you know to reach to be able to open. Um, they have to have in every case they have to have declining number of cases, declining number of hospitalization. Well, that that part's in place. That we've already we're already achieving on that part. And, but the question I have is why couldn't we have some coordination between the four Atlantic provinces? We did well in the first bubble. We were able to get together and agree. Like it's just sending nothing but confusing messages to the marketplace. Nobody can figure it out. And I was confused myself when I went through each of the provinces four plans. I, I, they don't, they don't align on anything, not on the dates, not on the requirements. When does the Atlantic bubble, you know, start? For instance, um, in New Brunswick is prepared, I believe, on um, July first, uh, uh, or, or when they reach seventy-five percent of eligible people having vaccinations to open up the borders to everybody except Nova Scotia. <laughs> you know? And on what basis? Nova Scotia's got it's under control, like, and, and then uh, in PEI, it's nothing's going to happen until you know July, you know. Almost July first, like, like it's just so confusing. Huh? If you're making travel plans to visit Atlantic Canada this summer, like what do you do? Uh, like uh, like I, it's very confusing, and uh, I think we need to clarify and harmonize. I think the uh, for Atlantic Province, we are we are in a position to do that. It would make it a lot easier to understand. We need to be slightly less conservative on on our plans. Still, still stick with the thresholds i don't think people have problems with the thresholds in fact it's the best thing that's come out since the pandemic has happened because until the plans of reopening we really didn't know what we were trying to achieve that was certainly the case in nova scotia we never knew what we had where we had to get to before things got better that was very frustrating for people like me i just i just need a plan you know give me a plan and i'll and i'll i'll, I'll wait it out but without kind of a clear identity of where where we're going, it was very hard. And so, you know, this is the thing that I think we've got to have some coordination in Atlanta, Canada.
0: Now with um, a a question for both of you on this, because uh, we did so much in particular, you know, David by region in New Brunswick in terms of reopening plans and different phases of recovery. And then, you know, Nova Scotia, we had what was going on in Halifax and then we had what was going on in the rest of the province. Did, did that patchwork system kind of lead to this lack of of uh, you know a recovery plan that would have impacted or been you know rolled out across the whole region Did we got too caught up in? Well, this is going on in Halifax now, and then this is going on in Campbellton, and then Moncton, and uh, like did that did that affect negatively our ability to plan? As their whole I
2: think it probably did. I mean, although I would suggest that maybe New Brunswick is finally trying to pay back Nova Scotia for not allowing our honeybees to migrate across the border. <laughs> so this is our last chance to get a take a shot at Nova Scotia. No, I'm I'm kidding about that. But I think that's right. I think I think I never thought of it, Mark. But I think that's right. So because they were doing it that way in New Brunswick, maybe that's now the philosophy that you you look at the area, you even forget about provinces, you actually look at specific regions and you isolate those regions. But again, as as Don said, when you get vaccination rates up to a certain level, you're just going to have to let this thing run a bit and, and play itself out. I mean, I agree with Don 100%. We should have done a four province coordinated opening plan. I mean, we talk all the time about the four provinces collaborating. This was an easy one, We'd already been doing the bubble last year. We already have, you know, a lot of similar characteristics when it comes to this pandemic. So I don't understand why the four provinces didn't come together and synchronize their plans. It would have helped with tourism. It would have helped with trade. It would have helped with, you know, family members getting, uh, reuniting across the region. So I think that was a bit of a mistake.
1: Yeah, yeah and just to, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but even, even the... Um various phases of each province have sort of different numbers for gatherings. It's it's all over the map. Uh, and uh, so there's there's the rules within the rules. It's not just agreeing on timetable and, and the big thresholds, but what what are the rules that, that you allow the restrictions that you lift going ahead? I was surprised, like maybe I shouldn't be, but in the case of Nova Scotia, you know, there's plan for masking until, you know, everybody's got two vaccinations. Um I was a bit surprised by that, but 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 maybe it, it's not it's not the same in New Brunswick, for instance. The mask restrictions start to ease pretty quickly. So there's all kinds of differences. Oh, oh by the way, I actually like the regional uh, look within the provinces at, at each region independently. I think we had another missed opportunity uh, in most of the region, especially in Nova Scotia, because. If you look at the vast majority of cases in Atlantic Canada, they happened in Halifax. That's where it was. And why? Well, we have the largest urban area in the country and we had people flying in and out of the airport from all parts of the region. And by the way, a, a lot of sources of the virus came from outside Atlantic Canada. We all know this. And yet, you know, we, we just now have uh, a testing protocol at the airport, which the airport authority had been asking for for months. Four months. This is a failure. Uh, and now, instead of making it mandatory, it's it's a voluntary testing pro- That doesn't make any sense. You know, there's a lot of learnings. I hope that after this is over, we put some sort of a, a group commission together to study the lessons and, and, and make sure we're ready uh, and, and for the next one. Because uh, there was, honestly, there are a lot of things that um, we learned by trial and some things that could have been done way earlier the idea of doing it by zones or regions is really important because uh, in Nova scotia the vast majority i think 85 percent of all the cases happen in Halifax through the whole pandemic so there are other regions uh, like I'm currently I'm, I'm living down the south shore of nova scotia in the western region of the province where you know throughout the pandemic that you know we might have had, You know, five active cases at a time. Well, you can have different rules like you've done in New Brunswick, depending on what's going on in each of the regions. You can actually keep the economy running a little bit better by just not simply closing down everything like Nova Scotia did early on. And then they learned from that, uh, that they could actually have different sets of rules for different parts of the province. So, you know, that that approach is still a good approach. Uh, to uh, keep the economy going where it can be kept going, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that there's some sort of a—I um, don't know—a study that says this is what we learned. This is the recommendations for uh, let's do it as Atlantic Canada because you know we're good at complying to the rules, <laughs> very good, best in the country. <laughs> let's 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 learn our lessons because it's going to happen again.
0: Another question on, on the reopening is um, international, you know, travel and and Americans being able to come in here. I know with the, just from a lot of people I've spoken to, there was a lot of confusion over the, the New Brunswick plan and the idea of, you know, people being in Maine, being able to possibly come into New Brunswick in that in, the, in as early as August. Uh, but of course, that was all predicated upon federal, federal decisions. Um, I do know that you know one person who's trying to get to New Brunswick in the summer from the United States can get to Ontario but can't find a way to get into New Brunswick yet. If you, if you, is there clarity in either of your minds around how that U.S. border piece is going to look? And it does it matter right now if we know what it looks like? No, I think
1: like? it matters a lot. And, and here's a question that I have. I don't understand this. If you have your second dose of vaccine, vaccine why is there any limitation on people either coming into the country or coming into our region as long as you can prove you've had the second dose of the vaccination either that works or it doesn't work why are we waiting with it it should be and this is something atlantic canada i think should do right away said so open it up to anybody now if they if the Canadian government its not allowing anybody to cross the border. There's nothing we can do about that. But put a blanket statement out there. If you've had two doses of the vaccine, you're good to go. And by the way, that's in every one of these plans already, but it's sometime in the future. Why do we have to wait sometime in the future to execute on that specific initiative? You know, I, I, I have friends um, uh, who live in uh, Blue, uh, Lunenburg, who've been coming to Nova Scotia from Arizona, they've been coming to Nova Scotia for more than 20 years. They usually come early in the spring and leave late in the fall every year. They've invested a lot in Nova Scotia. They're really good. They're they involved in the community in Lunenburg. They've been both fully vaccinated for a couple of months. Why are we preventing those kinds of people who make a contribution, an important contribution to our economies and our communities, why are we not allowing them in now?
2: There's two reasons. One is there's a reluctance to enforce some sort of vaccine passport, right, where you'd have to actually show that you were vaccinated. There's a worry among some that it would that be a violation of your charter rights or something along those lines. And the other one is that you still carry, you can still carry, and and you carry the virus. You can still get the virus. So I follow baseball, and a lot of baseball teams. The players that are fully vaccinated are coming down with the virus. Now most of them are asymptomatic. They have to get tested every week, and most of them are asymptomatic. Which comes back to my earlier point that we, once the vaccination rates are high, we're just going to have to let this play itself out even if people uh, at a low percentage are actually getting it, they're going, to get, they're going to be less sick because the evidence is now that if you get the virus after you've been vaccinated, you are far less sick, far less likely to go to the hospital. So this becomes more like a seasonal flu. And I think that's really where the test will be. If the public will allow 30 cases in Moncton, 20 cases in St. John, 50 cases in Halifax, uh, because of these opening of the borders, even if it means less hospitalization and very, very few deaths, because I think it's going to happen. I think that you know the, the the data is in that even if you're fully vaccinated, you can still get it and you can still carry it.
1: Well, I, I think David, you bring up a really uh, important point um, for governments. They need to reset expectations going forward, and they need to do that fairly soon. Uh, as an example, uh, I've been following this as closely as most people. I think listening to all the experts on you know the chances of getting um COVID with vaccinations it does happen it's not it's not hundred percent it's not hundred percent nothing was 100 percent uh there's more and more evidence to suggest that the likelihood of you having it even on an asymptomatic basis and spreading it is extremely low because a viral load that you have is much lower than somebody who is not vaccinated but th- this is this is a kind of information that the public needs to better understand they also uh, need to better understand, I think, uh, what the go-ahead likelihood is of that we're going to still be dealing with COVID for years to come. Well, I think it's probably pretty high. So let's get people ready for the fact that it's going to be, you know, it's going to be around probably forever now, and uh, we're just going to have to, you know, vaccinate like we do against other things, and um, and and learn to live with it because it's not likely to go away. It's uh, and and this is something that I think a lot of people really don't yet understand, in my view. So resetting expectations for the general public is really important. I think they should start at the federal level. By the way, this should be a pan-Canadian resetting of expectations. You know, you know what happens when we get the seventy-five percent uh, fully vaccinated, and uh, what are the expectations? Oh, and by the way, here's another bugaboo that I have. And in this region, we use two different ways of tracking vaccinations, one as a percentage of eligible people, one as a percentage of the total population. I don't know why we're doing this. It actually, it's so confusing because what uh, what they've said is that for us to get herd uh, uh, immunity, we have to get to 75% of the total population. And yet we're using this eligible because we can't vaccinate people under 12 years old. Let's let's use a common language so we all understand where we are. And uh, just on that point, I just you know in Canada right now, we're almost at sixty three percent of the total population who've had one dose, and almost nine percent who've had a second dose. Pretty good, really. Uh, in Nova Scotia, it ranges it ranges from a high of sixty three percent with one dose and and 6% with two doses in New Brunswick, uh, to uh, kind of the low number of PEI, with only 56% with one dose, but with 9% with two doses. And if you think about those numbers in terms of, these are the whole population, not the eligible numbers uh, uh, to receive it. Almost every province is, except I think Nova Scotia, is using eligible, you know, numbers, which are need to be higher, of course, because you're not including the people under 12. So I, I find it's unnecessarily confusing for the public. Let's use the same metric, the metric that we're trying to get to, which is 75% of the total population with herd immunity.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think for me, and I think this week in New Brunswick, um, around hitting that 75% target of eligible, to me the main reason to at least keep that, that stat in play is it acts as a bit of a pressure point. Uh, you know, on people who just, for whatever reason, they might be anti-vaxxers, but they also just might be, have not gotten around to it, quite honestly, as hard as that seems to be to to believe, Um, that being able to talk about the percentages of eligible is just important insofar as it acts as, hey, if, you know, you got to get this so we can get at least a 75 of eligible, right? No. But I think you're right. I I get it. But like, you know,
1: the numbers are confusing to most people because we're using two different bases to figure out where we
0: need to get to. <clears throat> and it's unnecessary. So guys, like I mean, despite all this, we're, you know, we're all optimistic that we are coming out of this and we are going to be able to restart the economies and start to open things up fully again. But turning, so turning our mind toward that kind of optimistic uh, view at this stage that, of course, we can still experience setbacks. Um, David, I'm, I'm curious about some of the some of the the economic hangover effects here, um, you know, around around issues like you know restarting immigration and and getting air travel back up. What are or what are some of the hangover risks that we're we might face here? I have
2: so many, so I'll do some rapid fire, and then we can we can just discuss some. Uh, the first one is around household spending. I think we've started to buy a lot more online, and I have seen a number of buy local initiatives to try and restart local purchasing. But I wonder how that's going to play out over time if we've now become more comfortable just just ordering from Amazon or other online sources and that will displace local local businesses. So we'll have to see. I'm very concerned about air transportation. There's a lot of talk about reducing the number of airports, particularly in New Brunswick. There's a lot of concern even in a place like Cape Breton, uh, CBRM, that that airport may not come back the way it was in the past. So very concerned about air transportation, very concerned about immigration. New Brunswick and Nova Scotia were at record levels in 2019, and they dropped by half last year. And I'm wondering how long it'll take that to come back, including international students. I'm very concerned about out-of-province tourism. Uh, We talked a little bit about that earlier, but if that doesn't come back, that could permanently... I mean, if you think about after 9-11, it took a decade to get those numbers back up to where they were before 9-11... Uh, And then the final one is the budding entrepreneurs. We talked about the impact on entrepreneurship earlier. I'm very concerned that now with pandemic risk floating around that there'll be less people interested in taking entrepreneurial risks. So those those are just a few of my concerns about COVID-19 hangover moving forward. And I'll talk a little bit later about what I think government should do to try and help address that.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree that those are all uh, concerns that I have as well. Uh, that's why that uh, I would be pushing for uh, reopening our region to travel sooner than planned, uh, given the, the lo- relatively low risk that we face now compared to even a month ago. And I would start, I would open up the Atlantic bubble like today, honestly. Um, we need to get, some predictability for the tourism industry. Let me give you an example. You know, I was thinking about uh, going to New Brunswick. I wanted to go to Grand Manan, you know, but I'm not making any plans. I'm not making any plans of, you know, I've had one shot of vaccine. I'm not gonna come back and isolate for two weeks to go to Grand Manan for a few days. So that's not gonna happen. You know, so that's the kind of postponement that we're having with people trying to make travel plans. And you ask anybody in the travel industry what's the biggest, biggest issue—the lack of predictability on when they can start taking reservations—and uh, every week is is meaningful in a short tourism season. So thinking that we're going to have the bubble open by the end of June—that uh, that's that's a big lost opportunity for way too many people in the travel industry and in the hospitality industry. Just ask them. So, you know, we can overcome that almost immediately within the bubble. Again, the total number of cases that we have in this region is probably, you know, three or four hundred. It's not a big number. Twenty two people in, in hospital right now. It's not a big number. You know, I think we can afford and use all the safety protocols that all these businesses are using follow them of course social distancing masking whatever Mm -hmm. you know let's just let's just open up our uh, our region at least to travel that's a good start and then as soon as possible and starting with the double vaccinated people allow them to come in as uh, as soon as they're able to get here that would make a big difference uh to our economy and it probably will save a good number of businesses as well
0: Thinking of one of uh, your earlier points, David, on on this around uh, structural shifts in the economy, right? So different ways in which people purchase goods and services. Um, you had mentioned the you know the the shift to shopping online. Uh, you know, I wonder if both of you have have a sense of how well businesses are making that adjustment, right? Because if you make the adjustment to shifting to online sales. You can you can still compete compete with the Amazons, right? If if you've made that pivot successfully, and I know that I've talked to a number of business owners who realize that that's actually a permanent shift, not a temporary one. That we may return to shopping in stores and eating in restaurants, uh, but but the percentages of people getting takeout or the percentage of people buying product online, you know, will will be higher than the pre pre pandemic. And if you're prepared for that, then you'll make that shift a bit easier. I mean, obviously, you're still going to be always competing with the Amazons of the world, right? And
2: Yeah, I, I think my issue, and this, this actually predates the pandemic, is why can't New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and PEI and Newfoundland and Labrador, smaller retailers, elbow their way onto the scene? And quite frankly, why doesn't Amazon actually allow you to choose whether you buy from a local retailer, a regional retailer, or one from uh, the Ukraine? Uh, I think that would be a a great benefit to that platform, like, for example, eBay, where you can just choose the areas where you want to purchase from. Because I think this is one of the problems with a a platform like Amazon, right? That I'll go online and I'll order 15 things and they'll come from wherever. They'll come from the US, they'll come from other parts of Canada, they'll come from uh, China in some cases. Uh, I bought something recently that came from China. Even on Prime, it only got here in three or four days. So... I think local retailers need to reorient themselves, uh, uh, to online and even, even service providers, uh, quickly and be, and then elbow their way in and make sure that we're buying local. I, my kids got me on Instagram here a couple of years ago, and I'm starting to see a lot more advertisements for buying local niche products, local providers from all over the region. Uh, and I think that's going to be helpful. But at the end of the day, I think the shift toward purchasing online uh, has not changed. I think more people are going to buy goods and services online than ever before. And our, our, our companies need to figure out what that means for them. And ideally, you know, if you need a specialized good or a service, uh, uh, and you order it online, you should be able to get it from somebody locally, or alternatively, our local companies start serving international markets from here. So if you want to sp- specific kind of jam or jelly or maple syrup or whatever, it's actually served up by a, a, a company in our region.
1: Yeah, I'm working on my next column for uh, the daily newspapers in Atlantic Canada, and uh, uh, the tentative title is uh, the pandemic di- dividends. <laughs> so I actually think that uh, a good percentage of businesses have uh, will come out of this pandemic Leaner and meaner, and uh, much more able to compete than they were entering the pandemic. They've already had to pivot in terms of how they offer services or deliver services. I think they're going to just continue that trend. They're going to they've got they've got their organizations right sized, and uh, they're ready. Uh, the other part of it is that I believe that there's a tremendous amount of pent up demand, and there's a great sympathy for local. You see it everywhere. People have gone out of their way during the pandemic to order from local restaurants and uh, help them out. And I think that uh, you know the first the first uh, beneficiary of that pent up will be the local markets in Atlantic Canada, where people will want to go places and do things and spend money because they haven't spent it very much in the last eighteen months. So I, I actually feel very optimistic that as soon as we can open things up. You're going to see, uh, you know that that the demand is going to go up uh, disproportionately. I mean, uh, even if you try to look at booking things like, um, you know, golf, premium golf in Atlantic Canada right now, you know, there's starting to be some sense that those the demand for that is going up already. So people are ready to spend. We need we need to turn the green light on and open the doors and allow them to spend that money. I think we might be surprised, David. Uh, that the consumer spending is probably going to lead us out of this kind of recessionary period like it always does but in a much uh, faster uh, at a much faster pace than in the past
2: i hope you're right because if you look at all of the products that people say there's a shortage of bicycles kayaks backyard pools this whole list it was in the paper the other day there's 35 things on that list none of them were manufactured or produced in Atlanta, Canada. So people are buying backyard pools at a record pace. They're buying bicycles at a record pace, but they're not manufactured here. So this disposable income, you're right. We actually saved more money last year than any year in recent history, because we didn't have anywhere to spend it. And plus all this government money was flowing in. So there is a glut of savings right now and that money will get spent, but are you right? And will that be spent on local companies? Or am I right, and the risk is that that will be spent on backyard pools, bicycles, and stuff that's not produced at all in our region. Uh, And if it's purchased online, you you don't even get a local retailer in the middle getting a retail cut. So I'm just a little more worried than you are uh, about this household spending coming back. And I think I'd like to see government at least support by local campaigns or doing something to try and orient uh, uh, consumers to purchase local. I'm sure restaurants will come back. That's not my concern. The bad ones will probably go under, but I think restaurant spending as a, as a category will come back. But this idea of purchasing goods and services, I'm not sure if, if it'll come back as strong as maybe you think it will.
1: Well, I, 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 I think that bricks and mortar retail is still gonna be under a lot of stress. Coming out of this pandemic, they were under stress going into it. Uh, their problems probably got a little bit harder because uh, many more people were introduced online. They be, 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 uh, began to become comfortable with it. Uh, but I think one of the one of the things that, that the experience of online has given a lot of people that it's not it's not as good as it may appear to be because quite often there's there are, there's a lot of product uh, dissatisfaction. And stuff that's being purchased online right now, I, I hear lots of evidence of people making bad purchases and having no recourse. And so that that provides um, an opportunity for the local retailer to concentrate on the service the aspect uh, side of retail. They're, they're going to have to be better for sure. They're also going to have to have an online uh, option. I think many of them have gone to online. That, that's why I think that they've they're. They've become a little bit more agile in, in dealing with the consumer than they were before the pandemic. So, you know, the good one, the good ones will succeed; the bad ones won't. Uh, that's that's the case with a free market. Um, uh, there are going to be winners and losers coming out of this. But uh, I tend to be optimistic that, like, in my experience, being in business for a long time, the people who see the opportunity and go after it, no matter what the circumstances are, always seem to come out better in the end and of course we've already had some businesses do extremely well during this pandemic maybe to Wade mclaughlin's perspective maybe there's opportunities for manufacturing in this region that weren't there before as well based on new demands for certain products that are becoming harder to get i'm not sure but uh you know if you're an entrepreneur out there and you're looking for opportunities The pandemic has presented a lot of opportunities. And Kathy Bennett talked about what she's done in that task force, NL, to produce PPE um, in Newfoundland and distribute it not just to Newfoundland, but where? Everywhere, you know. So uh, hopefully entrepreneurs will come out and seize those opportunities uh, now, now that the pandemic seems to be easy.
0: One of the the sort of hangover risks, um, to use that 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 phrase, David, that I wouldn't mind your both of your perspectives on too, that it has been on my mind a lot, and I'm sure it's been on your minds as well, is you know a lot of the a lot of the, the 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 services in the city centers around you know restaurants and and cafes and bars, a, a lot of them have been impacted by remote work and work from home, um, you know commercial office spaces emptying in the core with people working from home. And just how many of them are going to come back uh, in a big way and into the cores and how that could impact those downtown, those downtown economies. I mean, but at the same time, we also have, uh, and I know this is happening in all four of the cities, uh, construction of, of large apartment buildings in the downtowns that are going to bring more people into living in them. And it's been I mean, one of the parts of the economy that hasn't seemed to suffer at all, right? There's still the cranes in the air right now or to build apartment buildings in, in st john and I know Halifax is very busy on this this in this regard Don like are we going to see some some shifts happen there that are going to change the way that these downtown economies look
2: yeah so I studied downtown development in my consulting practice and that trend the trend away from office to residential and services in the downtown uh, was happening across north america before the pandemic So people realized that the number of office workers was going to go down just in general, and it has, uh, and they're replacing that growth with residential. And in Montreal, for example, they're building schools downtown and and playgrounds to try and have young families uh, stay in the downtown and, and families get raised in the downtown. So I think this has accelerated that. I think downtowns are now thinking about how do we even move faster into residential and services and and ways to get people to congregate again in the downtown uh, that makes less reliance on office now office will always be core to the central to the downtown and my read on it is that yes it's going to change but not as much as some people have said so the big consultancies for example originally came out and said work from home and now they're all saying well let's do both come into the office at least a few days of the week and so on so i think you're going to see more hybrid models you're going to see more uh, flexible workspaces but you're still going to see the downtowns as a place where people congregate. I think we that's what we missed right from this whole pandemic the most is this idea of getting together and actually face to-face meeting with teams and groups you can't replace that online o- online will pl- replace some of that uh, where it's convenient but for uh, for workers that work in the same office I think you're going to see a lot of that come back. Probably, you know, maybe 70, 80% of what we saw before. We'll see. But that would be my take on it. And then you'll see downtowns continuing to accelerate uh, the development of residential and services uh, to replace that office. And you're right, right now in the big urban centers, Fredericton, Moncton, St. John and Halifax, that's that's going apace. I mean, Moncton, there's probably 15 developments right now in the downtown of the apartment complexes. So I think that's going to be good. It's going to offset some of that um need for uh, office and commercial
1: yeah i would also add that <clears throat> i think that the percentage of people who exclusively work from home will remain quite small because socially uh, it's not it's not the best place for people to be i think i've talked to a lot of people can't wait to get back and be with their coworkers you know the socialization the problem solving that happens face to face is a little bit better than over zoom there's lots of benefits to getting together. There may be a hybrid model for many people, but uh, I am actually think that the percentage will be higher than David uh, has expressed at 70 or 80%. The other good thing about downtown course, and this is something that I've av- advocated for for oh, at least a decade and a half, is the densification process that is now actively going on in most urban centers in this region. Um, you know, in Halifax, I think over the last six or seven years there's probably three thousand more people living in the in the downtown core well that's a small town and think about all the services and products and goods that those people spend on a daily basis where they live it's going to create a lot of business opportunities for small businesses especially that'll replace any any downside of people not returning to work on a full-time basis i'm i'm very optimistic that our urban cores especially the ones that I've studied in depth, like uh, uh, Moncton and Charlottetown, Halifax, and even St. John. You know, they're going to be way better off in five years than they are today, no matter what happens, because of their, their master plans for each of those urban cores. And having a good plan is really important to success, and it's it's both business and residential. The fact that residential is playing such an increasingly uh, big part of the um, revival of downtown Cores is, I think, excellent for everybody in the community. So I remain extremely optimistic for our urban uh, centers in this region.
2: I had a socially distanced dinner with three business leaders uh, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago now, uh, and all of them told me they saw a bit of a productivity increase spike, a positive productivity spike when they first started with the remote workforce, but that it's ebbed over time. And in fact, now they're worried that it's going in the other direction. So I think there's some human nature things going on there. There's concerns over how do I get, you know, advance my career if I can't be in proximity to my coworkers and my boss uh, and other factors there that are a little softer. But I do think, um, I think, I guess I agree with Don that this is not going to be this revolution that some people thought I do think it provides more flexibility now. So if somebody absolutely has to work from home, I think employers are going to be more willing to let that happen maybe than in the past. And then, uh, for folks like me, I have a ton of clients in Ontario, for example, I'm hoping, you know, that, that, uh, zoom will become a little bit more of a permanent fixture or, or teams or whatever. But at the end of the day, I'm going to have to get on a plane, get back to Ontario and see many of my customers face to face when this pandemic, um, uh, Ibs.
1: Yeah, I just want to add that my own experience is that uh, I had people working permanently from home uh, when I uh, ran my business, uh, and it worked out really well. Uh, they did. They came into the office occasionally, uh, but mo- almost all the work came from home, remotely. Uh, but here's here's my my experience. There are very few people where that works well with. You know, not everybody, I would not offer that to everybody because I knew that they just wouldn't be as productive. There are some people with the right personality that are able to be as productive working remotely than working uh, in an office. But I would say it's the smallest percentage of the labor force. And as David intimated, you know, when you get home with all the distractions and, like, it's very easy, it's very easy not to, to become as productive as you would in a working environment where there's a little bit more structure and discipline. I'm sure there's be a lot of people who hate me saying that, but that's my experience as an employer.
0: And it also helps us create a little bit of separation and work-life balance, right? Like I, I could personally, I could be working out of home 100 of the time right now, but but I come into the office just because I, I just need a break from the house um, and need to create a little bit of, a little bit of separation there. But I know, like I, I interviewed Alan Lau, um, the CEO of and the co-founder of Wattpad, which has um, a headquarters in Halifax. And, you know, he told me, it, you know, it, it's worked for a year, you know, but he he can't grow his company uh, with a 100% workforce at home and even remains, you know, committed to opening up an actual office in Halifax, because uh, right now their their workforce is entirely remote in Halifax because they opened during the pandemic. Um, but it's just, it's just not going to work long term for the growth of their company to have everybody working from home because they, they just need to be at least two or three days a week connecting with each other. Um, I know we've been talking about really raising solutions all along um, as we've been having this conversation. Um, but, you know, but looking to Solutions as we work our way out of this, right? We have to restart immigration. We have to start bringing international students in again. We have a a workforce that's been on various, you know, wage subsidy programs or, um, uh, or or a form of EI through all this. How how does the labor force look coming out of this? And and how optimistic are you guys about? Overcoming the challenges, what are some of the solutions to restarting um, some of this?
2: Well, so I'll just give you the example of New Brunswick quickly, because the 3.4 or 3.5 percent decline in GDP actually means our economy shrunk back to the 2016 level because we haven't been growing very fast. So if you look at PEI, it doesn't matter. They shrunk by three. They're still up by nine but New Brunswick is actually back. So we've got to make up now multi years of economic growth. So I think in Nova Scotia, not as bad, but but in a similar circumstance. And of course, Newfoundland and Labrador, the economy is smaller, considerably smaller now than it was in 2016. So that means less tax revenue, right? Because tax revenue is very proportional to the size of your economy and your growth in your economy. So I think we've got to really get back, government's got to get really back to focus on a growth agenda. And labor market is a real issue, but I think, as Don said, once the enhanced EI goes away, I think you're going to see people maybe reluctantly, but they're going to have to get back in the workforce. I think this is a real challenge. I talked to the uh, uh, HR manager at one of our large contact centers. She was offering just she wanted 20 people at 16.50 an hour plus full benefits, and she couldn't find 20 people. And this was in Saint John, and there's something like 8,000 people unemployed right now in Saint John. So you know, I think once enhanced EI goes away, she has a better chance of recruiting those twenty people. Uh, may have to put her wages up a bit. I'm not sure, but at the end of the day, I think that that uh, the government support has been fun, but now it's done, and we got to get back to to uh, you know focus on the workforce and focus on growing the economy, focus on bringing in newcomers, and international students, as we talked about earlier, and ultimately making strategic investments. One of the things I wanted to talk about today was in this ultra low interest rate environment, somewhat ironically, the provinces, particularly in Atlantic Canada, with the exception of Newfoundland and Labradors, we've talked about in a previous podcast, have a little wiggle room in terms of investing in important capital projects like rural broadband uh, and other what I would call economic development uh, supporting infrastructure. And I think governments need to be looking at that now. Um, up to and including housing. We've been talking about housing in s- several of our podcasts, but maybe there's a role in the public, on the public side uh, to start boosting investment in housing. So now is the time for government to be very deliberate about how do we kickstart this economy? How do we get back to sustained levels of 2, 2.5% two growth? And for New Brunswick, that means going back 15 years now to, to the last time we saw that level of growth in a sustained way in this province. Uh, but I do think Governments need to be very, very diligent now about the focus on getting us back to a reasonable level of economic growth.
1: So as I mentioned earlier, uh, I think the private sector is really, as as happens in every economic downturn, becomes a little bit more efficient, uh, more focused, uh, leaner, uh, actually better able to compete going forward. So uh, I think the restructuring Uh, of the private sector has happened and it's ready to take off, look for opportunities to take advantage of those opportunities. The same cannot be said for the public sector institutions. There's been very little pressure on them as a result of this pandemic. Nobody's lost their job. You know, uh, nobody's concerned about taking a pay cut or any of those sort of things. So they've been isolated from the economic impacts of the pandemic. And there's really been no uh, motivation to improve how they do things. A little bit on the responding to the pandemic, obviously, in terms of uh, websites and access, those sort of things, but this, is, this would be a real opportunity for governments to re-examine their service delivery models, number one, and move maybe to more online service delivery, which would be more efficient and, and cost-effective, um uh, for the public so that's you know that's one thing that uh they should take advantage of i think and uh it would be um it would be important for them to to do that um the other thing i i, I guess is that you know uh, governments really need to to think about um how they do economic development at every level i wrote a column about this recently and we talked a little bit about it you know our economic development efforts have been you know, mixed, I'm going to be generous, mixed over the last few decades. We have way too many organizations doing way too many of the same things with really no outcome measurement and no accountability. This would be a good opportunity to think about how we do economic development in this region in in, in a different format. Uh, Right now, the government of New Brunswick is going through their municipal reform. I actually put a submission in, I don't know if you guys knew that or not, but suggesting that. This is a time to realign economic development uh, around the hub strategy that we had talked about, because it makes sense to think about uh, regions of economic development rather than even municipalities. So this is a great opportunity to take advantage of that, uh, of, of looking at how to do economic development, in my mind, and get uh, you know a little bit more measurement, a little bit more accountability would be good. And finally, the thing in that I uh, that I would say is that we're probably going to have Scott Bryson on in a near uh, podcast. He's been charged with uh, chairing the Commission on Economic Growth, and uh, you know, one of the things that I want to talk to him about is what do we do for communities outside of Halifax? Because Halifax is fine; it's going to be fine. You don't have to do anything for Halifax. Halifax is on a roll; it's got momentum. It'll be fine, you know, it, it, but but unfortunately, what, what's going to happen is Halifax every year becomes a bigger percentage of the population of Nova Scotia and a bigger percentage of GDP. What does that mean for the rest of the province? What are you going to do to stimulate economic development outside the major urban areas that are fine? Moncton, Fredericton, and, and soon to be St. John, Mark, are fine, but, you know, Miramichi, um, you know, um, Amherst, Yarmouth, th- all, those communities are not fine. And we need to find a new way of, of helping them develop their local economies. And we've talked about some of those ideas in the past. So that that's kind of, uh, I see it as an opportunity to redefine how we do things going forward, especially from a public sector point of view. Oh, by the way, I should mention we talked about this. One of the things that's already happened, and, and this is a good thing on the public side, is that we now have telehealth that I think will become permanent. That's that's more efficient, way more efficient, and um, and and so there has been there has been a change on the health delivery side, which I think is positive.
0: David, you've raised a couple of times uh, during the chat here. Uh, you know, a concern. One of the concerns is is how entrepreneurs will fare coming out of this, and. And, and, and the risks people will be willing to take, right? I mean, we've seen, there are lots of examples of resiliency um, and, and growth during during this period. Um, but are, are the concerns around uh, pe- people's, entrepreneurs' willingness to take risks coming out of this, is that something we should pay attention to? Um, what, you know, issues around, you know, research and development and money poured into innovation in the region, like how are we how are we looking coming out of all this on those... Factors. Again,
2: so it's a concern. If you look at the share of our entrepreneurs that are over the age of 55, how many of them are willing to make a big pivot now and 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 put more capital in the business, invest in research and development and R&D, or, or pivot into some other uh, online focus? I'm not sure the answer to that question. I, I have seen, and I think we're starting to see a lot more of what I would call these micro entrepreneurs, the ones that have very little... You know, capital invested, but they, you know, they're they're doing things on the weekend and they're setting up little shops here and there and pop up and making five or ten thousand dollars. And as I, I said in my blog on this, I think that's great. It's nice that I can go get a fresh waffle on the corner at, at the market on Saturday. But that's not the kind of entrepreneur. That's great entrepreneurship for sort of you know building these neighborhood economic models that we all love. But we need, also need export-oriented entrepreneurs. We need entrepreneurs that are growing their business and taking it national and international. And that type of entrepreneurship, I think, is under a little more duress right now because of this pandemic. And I worry moving forward that we're not going to see as many of those entrepreneurs taking that leap because now you've thrown pandemic risk along with competition and workforce risk and every other kind of risk you can imagine that these entrepreneurs face and in many cases, even the public doesn't like entrepreneurs, right? Because, well, you know, this is this is a, you know this is the next Irving, and they've got a nice car, a flashy car, and blah blah blah. So there is even a bit of a public backlash. Although Don's right, I think in general people love the small business owner in the corner, right, in their own neighborhood. There is a sympathy for the small business owner, but I'm talking about those entrepreneurs that want to go big and build businesses that go national or international. And I worry that we will see less of that moving forward unless we have a focus on where do they come from? You know, we talked in an earlier podcast about the number of international uh, entrepreneurs in a place like British Columbia. And I think we'll need to see more of that moving forward.
1: Yeah, let me just uh, add a couple of points to that. Um, First of all, the entrepreneurs are very resilient people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they have to be, um, and they're always looking for opportunity. So coming out of the pandemic, there's going to be probably more opportunity than normal just because of the changes that will result, businesses that will fail, others will come in to replace them. That's the way the free market world works. I, I have lots of confidence in that. The thing that I have less confidence is, is you know, the percentage of entrepreneurs that we have in this region relative to the rest of the country. And one of the problems that we've talked about in the past, Mark, is that because we've had very little immigration for a long, long period of time, we haven't had the influx of entrepreneurial immigrants coming into our populations. And what do they bring? New energy, new money, new ideas, new motivation. And, and you know, we've been stuck. Stuck is not the right word. But we've had the same group of entrepreneurs trying to do the same thing year after year it's only when you get new people coming in with new ideas that you get the self reinforcing development of the entrepreneurial class so I'm optimistic once we get back uh, on the more of uh, the immigration attraction that we've had in the past that we'll have more of those people coming in and here's the other opportunity we talked about I think is really important to the point that David raised about you know the large percentage of businesses that will transfer ownership in the next uh, little while. Um, I think that, you know, uh, it's going to be uh, an opportunity for immigrants coming into our community who want to buy businesses and and take over some of those businesses. We need to have a format, as we talked about in, pa- in the past, to link up people who want to buy businesses with the people who want to sell businesses. That should be a function that somebody should be thinking about right now. And maybe it's a private sector uh, uh, enterprise. Probably it is. But I think that there's lots of, there, there should be lots of opportunity for people to come in and look for business opportunities by taking over the businesses of people who want to exit.
0: Well, guys, uh, is, is there anything that we haven't uh, touched on here that, uh, that you want to touch on before we close? Yeah,
2: i just make one last point. I do think that we are in a little bit of a race for time. We've seen, for example, a lot of people—at least we think—a lot of people have moved here to retire during the during COVID nineteen. Um, you know, we're seeing—I think—seven thousand people in New Brunswick alone retired last year. Uh, so we are this sort of mega trend, right? Of 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 older residents in our region either retiring or heading toward the retirement uh, uh, heading toward retirement in the near future. And so we do, as a society, we have to be thinking about how do we re- replace the folks heading out of the workforce with folks, younger families and younger folks coming into the workforce. And that has to be an overarching theme. And we can't let COVID-19 uh, derail that as we look to the future.
1: Well, uh, Mark, I just say that uh, there's still a lot of unknowns ahead of us, obviously. Um, I'm encouraged by the progress that we've made Um in the region and dealing with COVID, I think it's now time to pivot and and be a little bit more focused on the economy and the the recovery of the economy. The sooner we can open our our regional market is uh, the better for everybody. Uh, I I would like uh, some um, some, uh, sort of uh, attention on that. I know that there's a a group of business people in uh, Halifax that have been pressing uh, the government to have uh, a slightly more aggressive timetable. You know, So there is starting to be some resistance to the timetable that is out there as being unnecessarily conservative at the moment. And, of course, there's people on both sides of that opinion. But hopefully we can get the um, the Atlantic bubble open uh, quickly, and that will be the start of uh, uh, better things ahead for our region.
0: All right. Well, it's uh, great chatting with you guys this week. Thank you very much for having well, me. Uh, thanks for your time, Mark. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Sletson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again with another episode next week.